So Margaret, tell us um, a bit about your transition into Mormon studies. You know, what were the things you were studying? What were the things you were learning and discovering that led you to be fascinated and want to pursue um, this, this area? There were really three things that I would say that, that led me in this direction. Um, first of all, I was at BYU during this time period. I've already described a little bit um, being at BYU in the late 60s and the, and the early 1970s, graduating with my bachelor's degree in 1972 in English. And as I said, my first love was literature, film, etc. Um, when I was a senior, before I graduated, because of my boyfriend who became my, my first husband, I took Latin and just became thrilled with it. And that led me to come back to BYU to work on a master's degree in classics. So the three things that really led me into Mormon studies were, first of all, that I got interested in ancient languages. I took Greek and Latin and began to work on biblical uh, studies. I started reading um, regular Christian, Jewish theology, and, and biblical interpretations and reading the texts in the original languages. So that was part of it. So that's one prong. Uh, the other prong um, is that I got interested in early Mormon documents and that was also because of my first husband. He introduced me to Mike Quinn. He introduced me to Paul, my husband. He introduced me to Hiram Andrus, who was an important BYU religion professor at the time. All of these people were I mean, this was that, it was the period when they were bringing out new documents. And um, so I started reading things about the 19th century that I had never heard of. And here I'd been in Mormonism all, all my life. So that was the second thing, and I'll come back to that a little bit. Um, the third thing was being at BYU in the late 60s and the early 1970s and being a smart woman who was interested in ideas and being treated as a second-class person, it slowly started to get to me. What are, some, what are some ways that someone in the early 70s, a female, would feel like a second-class citizen? I'm putting you on the spot, but... No, and I, 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 I can think of a couple of instances. For example, I remember being asked to teach a Sunday school class at BYU, um, and at first it was just they asked me to teach one lesson, and I was very excited about it because I was interested, as I mentioned before, I was interested in teaching um, and I wanted to teach. I liked to present my ideas. So I presented the Sunday School lesson and felt like I did a fairly good job. I'm always self-critical, but you know, it was, it was a good lesson, I think. And I remember afterwards one of the men, a return missionary, saying to me, um, I don't like, how did he put it? He said something about, I don't like to have a woman teacher. I don't think women should teach Sunday school. You know, so that was the type of thing. Mm -hmm. Or just the idea that, so that would be one experience. Another one would be that, um, because I, was, I began to get interested in theology and in ideas, it was hard to find a context where, as a woman, you could be included in that conversation. There would be little groups of men who were interested in talking, but it was always the men. 
So I felt excluded or as an outsider in this area that I was very, becoming more and more interested in. Fortunately, when I met Paul, he had a group of friends, and eventually they included me in their group. I was the only woman. But then that also began me, it made me start asking, is there something wrong with me? You know, why, why am I the only woman that seems to be interested in these things? Um, so that's another example. A third example, eventually I started uh, teaching Latin and Greek at BYU. I started, in 1972, I began into the master's program in classics. And then I started teaching first as a graduate student, and then I became a teacher there for a while, an instructor. And there were subtle things that, little subtle messages that were given of, as a woman, you were always subordinate. And I think part of that as well is the fact that, again, here I was, an intelligent woman, I'm teaching, I'm obviously interested in this, but there was never anybody who said, why don't you go on and get a PhD? I had a brother who was also in the program, and they were trying to get him into the program at Princeton. He decided to do something else. But I had all of my male fellow students that they're encouraging to go to PhD graduate students, and nobody sees me. Here I am teaching, giving all this service to the program, dedicating myself to building up the classic section at BYU, and nobody sees me as a serious, uh, this is a serious career for me. And so that was another message. That, and there was just one thing after another. The whole, the way at BYU that the priesthood, the church priesthood structure totally infiltrates the administration. It certainly did in the 70s. I don't know if it's still as strongly that way. Um, and that began to really bother me. So it was a, a series of things over a number of years that I started really questioning, you know, why do I feel like I don't fit in as a woman? But wasn't second wave feminism really coming into its It own was. And feminism? it's funny because uh, certainly in a conscious way, I was not influenced by that at first. I mean, I was, in a way, insulated at BYU from what's happening in the nation because, absolutely, second-wave feminism was just building and building. And, in fact, I found myself a little bit defensive at first. I, I wouldn't have called myself a feminist at first at all. Oh, no, that's that worldly stuff out there. I'm, in, I'm, I'm questioning my role as a woman. I'm upset on a deep level, but I can't even tell myself I'm upset about how I'm treated as a woman. And then they're talking about, you know, the ERA. Um, eventually there's Sonia Johnson. But I'm feeling very distant from all of that because that has been labeled as somehow worldly and bad. And that's just, you know, women trying to change the structure of things. And so there's almost this dissonance in me that at first I don't even recognize that it's conflicting. I distance myself from the ERA at the same time that theologically I'm asking the question about women's role. And I start reading and using my, my, um, my skills that I'm learning in biblical studies in Greek and Latin to start searching into theology. And I begin to ask the question, does God really want me to be 
eternally under the rule of man. And for me, this one of the interesting things that happened during the same time period is that, so here's back to the three prongs, you know, feeling subordinate at BYU because I'm a woman, um, interested in biblical studies and ancient languages and getting critical tools that are really helping me in my thinking process. And my reading is expanding into, into other scholarship outside of Mormonism. And then my interest in, in Mormon 19th century documents because of friends I have that are showing me things. And it was at that time period that I remember first running into the statement by Brigham Young in the Journal of Discourses where he says, that man who honors his priesthood and that woman who honors her priesthood will have an everlasting place in the kingdom of God. And I started running into things like this where I go, woo, there's something else here. It's not the Sunday school picture. And so for me, those things that I was discovering in Mormon history, there was troubling things that disturbed my picture of the church, but actually they didn't bother me because for me, this narrow little picture that the church was giving me felt stifling and it didn't work for me on either an emotional or an intellectual level. So the idea that the 19th century was full of all of these radical ideas, you know, whether I agreed with all of them or not was another issue, but at least it was, it was interesting, it was explosive, and it gave me an avenue through which I could ask the question, where is my place as a woman? And, and so I think that it, it took me several years to even um, know how to ask this. I mean, if I, I, I think all of that was happening like in 71 and 72. My first Sunstone speech was in 1984, and that was the missing rib where I talk about Joseph Smith giving Mormon women priesthood through the temple. But in that 12-year period, I'm doing a lot of reading and thinking and talking and working, trying to work through these gender issues and questioning the status quo in Mormonism. And, and maybe that's the most important thing that I felt, I felt entitled. I felt like I could ask, maybe because of this background I had with parents who didn't try to confine me. I think my own intellectual curiosity... And then I think for me the importance of the 19th century documents was that as soon as I realized that the church had not always been the same and that some of the 19th century prophets taught things that were not what the current prophets were teaching, then, you know, as you had to ask the question, well, how do we know that what they're saying right now is right? If they've rejected Adam-God theory, Adam-God theory, and say that's no longer right, how do we know that what they're teaching right now is right? Fifty years from now, this could be said to be wrong. So for me, the importance of the 19th century documents was that it exploded the idea of this staid, solid truth that never changes. Now, then there was the ethical question, well, if truth seems to shift from the 19th century to the 20th century in Mormonism, how do we know what is true? What are the touchstones for determining whether something is good or bad? And that was a deeper philosophical, ethical question that I had to grope with. But then the feminist issue fit in with that too, which is 
you know, is this right? I mean, why do I feel so bad about my place as a Mormon woman? Does it mean that there's something wrong with me was my first question. And, and that was part of my soul searching. So what are the, <clears throat> let's say that there are some young women today uh, who haven't even started studying any of the historical documents, anything in the 19th century. Take, take us through five or ten, and you can do it through a timeline, you know, take us through five or ten sort of um, trends or gifts or teachings that would have emerged from the Nauvoo time period and traced themselves all the way through the early, early 20th century that young women would be surprised to hear today, but that were actually quite a standard and pervasive uh, for the early saints. Um. I hope I can remember some of the exact things. I don't, I mean, I've done a lot, but let me just give you a, a, a feel for this. Well, for me, the most important thing was the idea of women receiving priesthood in the temple. For me, that is just earth shattering. And oh. I think very important for what is, women's how did that, place. What does that mean? How did that happen? Well, the way I discovered it was reading, as I said, the statement of Brigham Young, um, getting into the Joseph Smith documents where Joseph Smith in a series of speeches to the Relief Society talked about the way in which they would receive priesthood. And in, the, in both uh, the notes that were taken by people that attended those Relief Society meetings, this was in 1842, and he gave a series of lectures, and he told them he was going to make them a kingdom of priestesses. He told them that they would have a greater right to priesthood in the future. He told them that they had the right to use spiritual gifts, that just by the power of the Holy Ghost they had the right to gifts, but that soon they would have even a greater right to those gifts. Uh, there were just a number of statements like this. Um, and then in his personal journal, it, it says so explicitly, I gave a lecture today on how the women would receive the priesthood. Uh, I mean, it just says it just like that. So when I began to read those documents, I connected that with my own temple experience, where both I had had a spiritual experience there where I felt endowed with God's power, but also the whole ritual itself. Women wear the same robes of the priesthood that men wear. Um, women... Um, women officiate in the ordinances of the priesthood as it talks in the temple language. So for me, that's a, a crucial piece of evidence. And why is it crucial? Because obviously that priesthood that women receive in the, pre, in the temple is not functional in church today. But for me, it's crucial because, again, it opens up the current structure to a reinterpretation and to a critique because it says, is it really God's will that women have, you know, do not have the priesthood? Now, why do I think priesthood is so important? Maybe I don't have time right now to talk about all the problems theologically with priesthood in the first place because some people say, I just think we should get rid of priesthood, right? It's hierarchical. But in the current church, because everything is run by priesthood, women being excluded from it means that they basically have no vote, they have no voice, 
they have no no input in the official structure. Everything only has to come unofficially as men allow them to participate, and that bothers me a great deal. So to me, priesthood is the central question. No matter what topic you're dealing with in gender, in Mormonism, it always comes back to priesthood. But in addition to that, uh, two or three other things you asked me the question, what would women be interested in? Well, I think the fact that in the 19th century and up until 1970, the women controlled the Relief Society themselves. It was an independent, yes, certainly it was an auxiliary within the church, but the women presidency of the Relief Society had real administrative power. They controlled their own budget. They had their own magazine. They had uh, welfare resources that they used independently of the men. Um, I think that's enormously important for women's sense of their own worth and also for their ability to do good and to use their own initiative. So I think that's a second thing I would say. So priesthood, the Relief Society, the independence of the Relief Society. Another thing was the sense of women of having the ability to use spiritual gifts that in the 19th century they felt they just had a natural right to. It wasn't just the priesthood that did it, that women did it. I remember reading in my great-grandmother's journal about one of her children becoming very ill and you know they didn't have the medical uh, you know kinds of resources that we do now and she 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 prayed and she laid her hands on the child's head and she felt inspired to give the child something and the child threw up and the illness kind of broke and you know but she gave the child a blessing she felt she had the perfect right to do that as as a as a mother, as a woman. How'd you feel to discover that, to read that? Um, I, to me, you know, those kinds of stories I had, there were quite a few family journals. They were, they formed a lot of my thinking about what Mormonism is. And I think maybe the important part of it is that because this was part of my own history as well as part of the church's history, that it gave me a sense of empowerment, that the church didn't just belong to the leaders, but it belongs to me and my family as well. Maybe that's the most important thing. I mean, for ex another example of that, which has nothing to do with women, um, one of my ancestors is Warren Foote, and he wrote three volumes of beautiful journals, and he describes in there uh, going, would it be Kirtland, where they went to see the papyri, the, the Egyptian papyri? and talking to Joseph Smith about them. And the way he describes it is that they were big rolls. They're very different than the thing that we now have. And he describes this, you know, that it was all on the floor in this long roll, and that Joseph explained to them that the red marks in the margins were the scribe's marks. And, it's, and, and so I had read that when I was in my 20s, and so when the big controversy came out about the Joseph Smith papyri, I said, well, what we have right now is not what my great-great-grandfather described in his journal. I remember reading that in, in my 20s. So there's a way in which that transforms you, I think, to have that first-hand knowledge that you're not just dependent on these other authorities for how to think about history or how to think about doctrine. 
it, it gives you an independence of spirit and an ownership that I think are really important. It's not just a textbook knowledge. It's absolutely part of your history. Your heritage, your family, your, your right to this organization and church. So those to me are probably the three most important things for women. Um, also, well, maybe four. You asked for five, but I could at least give you four. <laughs> the fourth thing would be their women, 19th century women's involvement in the suffrage movement. And that they felt that they had a right to speak out for women's position. And then later, it wasn't until the early 80s, 1980s, I began to read. I went through, before I gave my first Sunstone speech, I read, you know, volumes out of the Women's Exponent. And you read in there, and you see how strongly the 19th century women felt about um, the importance of arguing for women's rights. I mean, their, sub their subtitle under Women's Exponent was, for the rights of the women of Zion and the whole world. You know, that's what they felt that they were fighting for. And, and so when I discovered those documents in the early 80s, that was very empowering as well. The idea that they felt like that it was their duty to fight for um, the rights of women and that they should do this as daughters of God. That, that was extremely important. And, and that was, by the time I read that, that was like 1982, 83, ERA is passed. I'm beginning to feel upset with myself that I didn't participate in the ERA. Because at that, you know, back in the early 70s, I was still not quite sure enough of myself to participate in that. And I think that that was transforming for me because I was determined... I felt the same way about the priesthood and the black issue, by the way, that I didn't, I, I was not involved in the discussions on that. And so by 1980, I began to feel like that I had not spoken out on blacks and the priesthood. I had not participated in the ERA. And by damn, I was not going to be left behind again. I was beginning to feel that it was my duty as an LDS woman to speak up about issues that affect, I mean, these are not just little doctrinal issues that have no practical application. For me, issues of gender and race and sexuality touch people on their everyday lived lives and how they feel about themselves and whether or not they can relate to God or relate to their, to their children or their spouses or they can have healthy relationships. These kinds of issues are so crucial that I felt, began to feel so strongly that I had to speak up about them. And when I gave that first um, Sunstone speech in 1984 called The Missing Rib, it caused a stir. And I remember at that point, my sister Janice Allred asking me, what are you going to do if, if, you know, they want to talk about this in the press or that this becomes controversial? How are you going to handle this? And I, at first I hesitated, and then I think I made a commitment then that I wasn't going to be afraid anymore, that I was going to speak out. And that was more or less my, I mean, obviously I hoped I could keep my membership but I, I really felt like I had missed the boat in the past and I wasn't going to miss it again. I was going to speak out because to me it's so connected to 
what I think is the most important aspect of religion, which goes back to my first, this spiritual experience I described, which is the worth of each individual soul and the idea of people being able to feel that God loves them and that they are worthwhile and that what they believe and say is worthwhile and that their voice is worthwhile in the community. Um, who were some of your colleagues in the early 80s, some of the women that you were talking with who were sort of, and what was the environment like as, as you guys were trying to discuss how to strategize, how to make progress? Did you have any colleagues or peers? You know, when I first started out, I didn't at all. I was very much a loner. I mean, something that I didn't mention that was very influential was that while I was at BYU, Eloise Bell gave a talk about feminism. It never would be allowed now, I don't think, but I'm now I'm forgetting the date. It was probably, um, probably 74, 75 maybe even 76 when she gave, it was a, it was a devotional speech. I was teaching BYU, <clears throat> excuse me, I was teaching at BYU and it was a general um, BYU devotional to the whole school. And she talked at her, the subject of her talk was why feminism is not at odds with Mormonism. And that was the first time that I thought I am a feminist and I wasn't ashamed. It must have been like 75, 76 when I was teaching at BYU. And I remember just being thrilled by that speech, and I was already feeling all of these things, but I wasn't able to claim the title. So um, that speech that she gave was very important. Now, if, 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 if it were the present me, I would have gone and talked to her. At that point in my life, I was more... I was more I don't know if I want to use the word shy, but certainly I was more of a private person and I didn't go and talk to her. So I was still doing more exploring on my own. It was not until 1984 when I gave that speech at Sunstone that I began to um, connect with other women, which then began to be very powerful. So, uh, but, but from all the 70s up till 84, I was mostly on my, uh, my by myself and just reading. I was reading other, well, I knew that those women in Boston, you know, that they had brought forth documents about 19th century women, Claudia Bushman um, and uh, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich and other women. I mean, I was aware of their writings, uh, Maureen uh, uh, Beecher Ersenbach. Um, did I say her name right? Uh, I know her, Maureen. Um, you know, I was aware of it, but they were not my friends. 84, when I gave that speech, then I was invited to a couple of, um, was invited to like pilgrimage and some other women's retreats, and I started getting to know women. And there were a group of us, Lynn Whitesides, my sister Janice, and a few of us that started a book group where we started talking about feminist issues. So from 84 on, I became very involved in Lori Stromberg. I met her during that time period. All of us began to talk. I met Levina. Um, but it was not until 84 when I gave that first speech. I kind of came out of the blue. I'd been on my own doing all this research, talking to men like my husband and Andy E. had and, and Mike Quinn. I knew all of them, but all my friends were men until that point. 84 was the first time that I started connecting with women. And then we started the Mormon Women's Forum in 1988, four years after that. So 
from then on, we began to start talking. When we started the forum, which connects with your question, we really, we were very idealistic. Well, at least the two women who actually started it, Kelly Frame and uh, Karen uh, Christ, uh, Erickson Christ, they had read some of my work and they'd read other things and they wanted to start a forum where you could bring together sort of the intellectual women who were doing the research with mainstream women in the church and they had this idea, we can just get this forum and we can start talking and we'll talk about issues like Heavenly Mother and women in the priesthood. And if we can just get women to come there, they're going to see how important this all is. And, you know, it's going to bring about this big change. And I was more skeptical by that point. But I said, okay, why not? And um, it, it's interesting because at first, it's true, we had a lot of attendance at the Mormon Women's Forum meetings. A lot of women from BYU came. But we didn't really ever get mainstream women. It was really difficult to, um, to you know, appeal to those women in the wards and the stakes. I know that Karen invited women from her ward for our first meeting, and they were shocked and appalled that we were talking about women having priesthood, and they immediately reported her to the bishop, and she got in trouble. And although at first there was the feeling that at least BYU women and other women who were very involved in the church could attend, by the early 90s, there began the polarization, and the and things began to fall apart. Would you say a lot of people attended? Oh, meet? two or three hundred. And this would be meet how often? Um, well, at first, we were meeting maybe four times a year. Uh, we had one big debate in 1989 on women in the priesthood that we held at East High School. There were at least 600 that attended that. Hmm. And... So in our in the Was first the debate whether or not they should have it. Yes, uh huh. <laughs> yeah. So we had both sides. You know, I was arguing for, and I remember Ralph Ellsworth, not Ellsworth, Ralph Hancock down at BYU. He was uh, against, yeah, yeah. and but the fact that he participated, I always appreciated anybody who's willing to at least talk and not just dismiss you. So between eighty nine and ninety three. The Mormon Women's Forum was very vital. We would usually have at least 200 people. But again, it usually appealed more to the Sunstone crowd than mainstream Mormons. It was very early perceived as feminist and dangerous. 93, when you had the September 6th and the excommunications, it very much polarized Mormon feminism. Um, BYU women were more or less told they couldn't participate anymore. Uh, women, because of the excommunications, were afraid that if they got involved, they might lose their church membership. So what I saw happen in like 1993, in that period, 93, 94, is that you had a huge polarization of women on women's issues where either they said, I've got to be quiet and go back to church because I don't want to lose my membership, or they just walked, just said, I'm out of here. And I, I know personally hundreds of women that left in that period of the early 90s who left the church because they just said, I can't, the way that the church, you know, has treated people like me, Margaret, Janice, Levina, Maxine, all the women that got in trouble, you know, and especially because now this was a repeat of the Sonia Johnson, they felt like there was no place for them in the church and they left. So I, I personally know hundreds of women that left. It's interesting because in that period of the late 80s, 
we really wanted to believe that it, the Sonia Johnson thing wouldn't happen again. We wanted to think that we were approaching this because it was not political, that it was more religious in a way, that we were trying to tap into uh, the roots of Mormonism, that we weren't just bringing in ideas from the feminism and the world, that it was more theologically based, that it would be more Mormon and more acceptable, that it would be different than that, but it wasn't. And, you know, to me that was very sad. So, I don't know, but I think there's going to be another wave of Mormon feminism. I think already, like with feminist Mormon housewives and other things on the internet, that that there's a younger generation of women that, you know, will they, will they find a way to work more within the church? I don't know. To me, the, the church is so, there's such a male authoritarian hierarchy, and there's such a fear of challenging that, that I see that as the huge problem.